We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Hi, my name is Rich Lamello. This is Chasing Hardware, and I want to welcome today's guest. It is football legend Bill Curry. Bill Curry was on three NFL championship teams, the 1965 and 1966 Green Bay Packers, the first, the NFL champs, the second team, the first Super Bowl champs. And also a member of the 1970 Baltimore Colts, who were the champs of Super Bowl V. Um, Bill played for the Packers, the Colts, uh, as well as the Oilers and the Rams, and then was the head coach at Georgia Tech, Alabama, um, Kentucky, and Georgia State. He is a graduate of Georgia Tech, and he's from outside of Atlanta, and he is today outside of Atlanta. Uh, Bill Curry, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Well, it's great to be with you, Rich. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Looking forward to uh, to chatting today. Uh, it goes without saying that when you're a member of three championship teams, you are surrounded by incredible talent. You yourself, obviously, must be an incredible talent. You've got great coaching. Um, and but be, you know, before you get to Green Bay and to Baltimore, and you're competing for national titles, you're a kid growing up in College Park, Georgia. What was that like? And 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 kind of tell me when you knew and how you decided that Georgia Tech was going to be where you wanted to go to college. <laughs> well, I, um, I had this strange little thing showed up at our house when I was 10 years old. And it was about a nine-inch screen. And it had little rabbit ears that protruded from the top. And it had a fuzzy picture on it. And when I turned it on the first time, I honestly believe this is the truth, but whether it is or not, it's the first thing I remember. It was Yogi Berra and the World Series. And I made up my mind. This is a this is a short, fat, uh, lazy kid in College Park, Georgia. I made I was absolutely bound and determined I was going to pitch for the New York Yankees. And so I got had I had a good buddy. We loved baseball equally. We played baseball all day, every day. Year-round, we didn't even watch football or basketball or anything else. So that was one goal. By the time I was 12 years old, 
I had also decided that I was going to marry Carolyn Newton, who was the most beautiful girl in the world and the smartest kid in College Park, Georgia. She was not interested in me because she was taller than me. She was 5'2", and I was not. And uh, we, were, we were in the sixth grade. So that's kind of how we went along. Uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, it, it had begun to dawn on me that maybe I wasn't going to make it to Yankee Stadium by uh, throwing baseballs. Um, and I had played the other sports. And I didn't particularly like football, but that was the sport that I had the most talent at which I had the most talent. And my uh, guidance counselor, Ms. Ruby Crow, called me and she said, now, Bill, I understand you're considering Georgia Tech. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, don't. I said, don't what? She said, don't consider Georgia Tech. My dad was a Georgia Bulldog, so everybody had assumed I was going to go to Athens. And um, she said, you're not a stupid boy, Bill, but you have frolicked all the way through high school. You would not last two semesters at Georgia Tech. They have national merit scholars. They take calculus and physics and chemistry. And um, I just think you need to think differently. Uh, you have frolicked all the way through high school. So I thanked her and went down to the library and looked up the word frolic. And she was correct. But what she didn't know is that I had gotten a map and I had discovered that Georgia Tech was the closest campus to Agnes Scott College, a, an all-girls school. It's still an all-girls school in Decatur, Georgia. And guess who was going to be at Agnes Scott College? Carolyn Newton. Right. And um, so while I didn't end up pitching for the Yankees, I have been married to Carolyn Newton for 59 years. The best thing that ever happened to me. It only took me six years to get a date but uh, we still tease about that. And you finally got taller than her. Uh, oh, yeah. When I asked her, why did you suddenly get interested in me when we were seniors in high school? She said, because you grew a foot. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> that's, her, that's her answer. But, um, but I also had a coach at Georgia Tech named Bobby Dodd, and he made us go to every single class. If I had not had that football coach in 1960, I would certainly not have graduated from Georgia Tech, and Ms. Crow's prediction would have come true. But with Coach Dodd, you didn't have any choice. You'd be uh, if you didn't go to every single class and sit on the front row and take notes, you ended up uh, running up and down the stadium steps at 5 a.m. And I definitely did not enjoy that. So I had a great coach who loved me too much to let me self-destruct, and um, I ended up with a diploma from one of the toughest schools in the world where indeed I did not belong when I first went, only because my football coach loved me too much to allow me to self-destruct when I was incapable of seeing my own potential. And that's what I tried to do with every single one of my players in the 27 years I coached. I tried to give them Coach Dodd's message. And um, I hear from them almost every day now. It's, it's remarkable. But um, that's, that's a long-winded answer to your question of, how I ended up going to Georgia Tech and with the particular bride that, that I'm still so happy with. That's great. Yeah. And Bobby Dodd, obviously a legend. It's, it's always amazing when, yeah. so he played at Tennessee for Bob Neeland, the stadium there is named for him. And then Bobby yeah. Dodd himself, the stadium at Georgia Tech is named for him. I mean, that's, that's the heck of a lineage, right? Yeah. Here's what he said to us the first day. Now, man, um, his record at, at, 
Tennessee as a quarterback was 27 and one. He said, I played quarterback at Tennessee and did a pretty good job for him. I am a second quarter sophomore at Tennessee and I'm 53 years old. That is not going to happen to you because you're going to go to every class. We had Saturday morning classes. I'm not making this up. We might, we might go take calculus and physics at eight o'clock and nine o'clock on Saturday morning and play Alabama at two o'clock. You better be in those, you better be in those classes. Yeah. So it was the real thing. And it's exactly what Bill Curry needed. And it's, it's funny. It's interesting. I, I know having done a little bit of reading on him, he was high on character development and the practices were not intensely physical. If I understand correctly, a little bit different than the next coach we're going to talk about. Um, and he had a books first philosophy when it came to recruiting, which people thought he was crazy, but he was actually genius because every parent wants to hear that because not everybody's going pro. And if books first matters, then there you go. Yeah. My mom liked his message a lot. Yeah, <laughs> she exactly. Knew, she knew, um, she knew me too well. But it, it's funny. I spoke to Charlie Joyner two weeks ago and he said that Eddie Robinson's, uh, uh, strategy recruiting for Grambling was that you recruited the mothers and the kid was going to follow. And, you know, it's, it sounds like Bobby Dodd had a kind of a similar mindset. Tell the parents what the parents want to hear. The kid's going to go. Well, I've so. been lucky enough to get to know Coach Robinson a little bit while he was still with us and to get into and and his family since he's uh, since he passed. Sure. And his message was the same as Coach Dodd's. They were just in parallel wor worlds and different worlds. Sure. But, uh, but they had great respect for each other. Yeah. So then you get drafted in the 20th round, which doesn't even come close to existing anymore. <laughs> I think the NFL draft is now seven rounds. You get drafted in the 20th round by the Green Bay Packers and you go to camp and in, in kind of thinking about what happened with you there and, and, you know, doing some reading, it struck me that while there's probably 50 people who had an immediate impact, four jumped out at me in terms of, you know, kind of hearing your thinking behind the relationships you had and the very first impressions, obviously coach Lombardi, Bart Starr, Ray Nitschke and Willie Davis for very different reasons. All four of you them. You got them. You got it. You got all four of them. Yes. Yeah. There were others, but those were the four key factors in my life. Right. And I remember, and, and you were only with Green Bay for two years. They were obviously two incredible years, two championships, and, and obviously being surrounded by Hall of Famers all over the place. Um, probably not an easy two years, um, but I'll let you, you know, kind of say that. But it was intriguing reading about, you know, kind of your impressions of Vince Lombardi, and you called him a human force field, and, and also spoke to his ability uh, to manipulate in good ways and bad ways. Um, and I'd love to hear about that. And I would also love to hear your anecdote about how he sat you down one day when, again, you're a 20th round rookie, probably just crossing your fingers, you make the team. And he pulls you down and walks you through the offense on one sheet of paper and how you trade your rings and your trophies for that one sheet of paper back. I would. I would. Yeah. It was I'd a yellow legal pad. It was more than one sheet, but it, it was it was the entire offense on set on a few pages. Yeah. But um, that's a. I got a, first of all, I started my, I was very slow maturing and um, I started my first game for Georgia Tech, the fourth game of my fourth year. Okay. And I had been redshirted. So I was an academic senior at that time. I was already married. 
we we'd gotten married our, our junior year, and um, <laughs> Carolyn and I made a deal. She said, "Okay, education was very important to her." She said, "I'll drop out. I'll work at Delta Airlines until you finish. As long as I get to go back and finish my education after that, uh, I'll stay home while the kids are in school or while the kids are, are little. Whenever we decide to have children." And then when they start to school, I'd like to finish my education. I said, okay, that's fine. I didn't know that she meant every diploma offered in Western civilization. So she's a history PhD now. It took her 14 oh, wow. years, but she never made a B. And, uh, and she raised two great kids and now we have seven grandchildren. So uh, the deal worked out real well on that count, but it was a little more than I had bargained for. Right. Um, but, after having played that little bit, uh, that, that part of a season, uh, my phone rang after the season, early in the morning, it was my brother-in-law, Carolyn's brother, who's a great guy, he's, he's funny, he's always messing with me. Also a scholarship football player at Tech. And he said, hello, Green Bay Packer. And I think I hung up on him. Uh, you know, he's, he's always messing with me. He called me back and he said, um, I'm not kidding. I said, oh, come on. I didn't even, I didn't even know they were holding a draft. I didn't know they had a draft. Yeah. Uh, that's how much, that's how aware I was. He said, you've been drafted by the Green Bay Packers. I said, I've never gotten a letter from the Green Bay Packers. They've never heard of me. He said, well, go get a newspaper and take a look if you don't believe me. Well, sure enough. And Pat Pepler was the personnel guy. He loved to tell this story publicly. So I presume it's true, but apparently Lombardi had turned to him at two in the morning and said, Pepler, we've drafted 19 players. It's two o'clock in the morning. I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed, do something humorous with the 20th selection and walked off. And Pepler said, that's how you ended up getting here. <laughs> well, I didn't care how I got there. I was there and Absolutely. I intended to stay. And it was uh, uh, in my first few days after in those days if you played in the college all-star game and I was blessed enough to get to do that um, then you reported to camp two weeks late so I was terrified showing up at the Green Bay Packers two weeks late I didn't care even if there were rules that covered that uh, and as I was walking to dinner there, there was something really symbolic about this this part I'm about to tell I was walking over, and I've never felt more alone in my life. And I had just reported, and uh, I've sensed a presence next to me. And uh, when I turned and looked, it was Bart Starr. Mm. And I said, oh, Mr. Starr. He said, no, nah, none of that stuff, just call me Bart. And uh, I said, well, hello. Uh, Bill Curry, he said, I know who you are, and uh, I'd like to walk over with you, and we'll have dinner. Really? <laughs> That's not the way I had heard it, the, the rookies being treated. Right. Um, he said, also, I don't know what your faith is, but we have a wonderful Methodist minister, and uh, if you'd like, uh, Jerry and I would like to take you to church tomorrow, and you come have Sunday dinner with us. Bart Starr had joined me. He had walked by my side in my first moments 
in the National Football League. He never left my side until the day he died. He became one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. One of the great role models ever in my life. Um, I could tell you Bart Starr stories until the cows come home and we'd never finish. And you'd, you'd find some of them hard to believe the way he treated people with such grace and it didn't matter whether they were the president of the United States or if they were nobodies, he treated everybody the same um, with grace and acceptance. And um, I was the recipient of that from the very beginning. And so was Carolyn as we, as we moved through life and they stayed by and he hired me for my first NFL job. I mean, after being a player, Right. And he's the only reason that I had a chance to become head coach at Georgia Tech because he hired me as his line coach when I had one year of coaching experience, one year as an assistant at Georgia Tech. Barb brings me in as the line coach. And he took all kind of grief for that in Green Bay. He was just so um, that's the first brush I had with what I was to learn from uh, those four people that you just mentioned. And then sure enough, the next morning, Vince Lombardi, uh, there was a knock at my door real early. I thought it was some rookie messing with me. And I don't know, I don't remember how I handled it. Probably not very well. Hey, come on in or something. It was Vince Lombardi. And he said, Bill, I'd like to go over our offense with you. (laughs) I said, well, I think that'd be great coach. And uh, so you were correct. If I could just have that yellow legal pad back, I, I would I would swap anything for it. I don't know what I did with it, but at, the, at that moment, I memorized it. And um, he liked that a lot. It was so simple to understand that the system was so simple. And as I moved on into other systems, I saw one reason that Lombardi won so much was that he could, he could refine the system into some some very simple components and teach it. He was a physics teacher. That's what he was. And so he had done for us what he did for his physics classes, I'm sure. And you couldn't screw up that offense. You'd have to be really stupid to not understand it. Right. Uh, And if you were stupid, he would tell you, you're stupid. Um, One of our players, I'm not going to call his name, he said, um, hey, and again, he was, he was a back, and he ran into Jerry Kramer from the rear. He said, you stupid SOB, except he didn't say SOB. <laughs> and uh, the, back, the guy came back. He was, he was in my class. He's standing next to me, and he started crying. <laughs> so coach came back, saw that he was sobbing, and he said, all right, I'm sorry I called you an SOB. But you are stupid. (laughs) 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 So he had a way of getting your attention. But I didn't do well with Coach Lombardi. I didn't uh, respond well to him. And I said some terrible things about him. And then I had to go apologize on his deathbed. That's another long story. But he was a powerful, uh, as you you recall, I, I, I called him a walking force field. And that's exactly what he was. Yeah. And you, you did start in Super Bowl one for him and you won the first Super Bowl. Yeah, I, because Kenny Bowman got hurt early in sure. the year, but before right. the league season started, 
I did start every game, but I left the Super Bowl with an injury. And um, I think that was part of the reason that I was uh, put on the expansion list. But I, I couldn't run on my ankle. It's the right. only game I, I didn't miss any uh, another play the rest of the year, but I did leave the Super Bowl. And Bowman went in and played great. Um, but that was my last game with the Packers. Right. And then, um, well, we'll jump to Baltimore in a second. But, um, but before that, uh, would love to hear your initial thoughts on Willie Davis, who I think you said something along the lines of, with a leader like that, you can't lose. And it, I think it's probably safe to say that he helped change some of your preconceptions coming from the South. Um, and then I'd also love to hear a thought or two about Ray Nitschke, who obviously was just, I think your line about him was he, he possessed a demonic intensity, <laughs> which I thought was a great way to put what yes, he was. He did. That whole team had a demonic intensity, that the, especially the defense. But um, I was supposed to block Ray Nitschke, and that was hilarious. He broke my, he broke my nose and my face mask and knocked me out. And that was the first day. Um, I went to the equipment guy and I said, my, I think my helmet's broken. He said, well, put it back on. We'll get you another one tomorrow. Uh, it was a really wonderful, fun experience to be welcomed in such a fashion. So for me to try to block Ray Nitschke was hilarious. And it was so embarrassing. It didn't occur to me that nobody else in the league could block him either. I didn't think about that. He was, right. he was a Hall of Famer. He was already a great, great player. and he, It wasn't his job to be nice to me. I thought everybody was going to be like Bart Starr. Well, Bart was the only one that was that nice, right. uh, except for Willie Davis. And, um, but that was, see, Nitschke was not my biggest problem, and Lombardi, and Lombardi was not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is that I'd never been in a huddle with an African-American person, except for a couple of all-star games, right. a few right. plays. And, uh, and, that, and that, those were people like Bob Hayes and Gail Sayers, uh, who were so astonishing in their talent level that I, I thought they were otherworldly. I mean, they were. They were. <laughs> um, so I was utterly um, in an alien environment and I thought these huge and, and, and Lombardi's greatest asset he had many great he, he simply wouldn't have won as much as he did had he not had many assets but his greatest asset is that he would not tolerate prejudice or racism of any sort sure, he had sure. been discriminated against because of his Italian American heritage and he had been turned down for head jobs and he knew the reason simply because he had a vowel at the end of his name he knew that. He had been told that by the, by the people that turned him down. Uh, imagine that. Would you feel wonderful to be at some college that turned down Vince Lombardi because he happened to be Italian? Well, he didn't care what color your skin was or what your religion was or where you lived or where your point of national origin. He cared a lot if you could play football. He cared a lot if you were a good person. And um, But I didn't know that. And I had all these prejudices. Um, and my parents had not taught us to hate anybody, and yet we just didn't mingle with people that were different from us. And um, so my biggest problem turned out to end up being the greatest thing that could have happened to me because I was in such a state of, I was so receptive to any sort of act of kindness. I was walking out of the dorm one night and uh, 
Oh yeah, another thing is August and it's 47 degrees and that ain't right. Yeah. <laughs> We're in West Dupier, Wisconsin at training camp. And uh, I hear this voice out of the darkness, Bill. And I, I thought it was God. I just almost collapsed in the grass. It was Willie Davis. And he said, I'd like to speak with you. Now here's all pro, future Hall of Famer, Grambling State University, working on his master's degree in business at the University of Chicago, while being the captain of a team that's already being called the greatest team of all time. Right. And he wants to speak to me. And it couldn't be but one thing. He's going to tell me to get lost, to go home. I was terrified that that's what he was going to do, but that's not what happened. Here's what happened. He said, Bill, I've been watching you at practice, and I really like your effort. You try so hard, and you got a chance to make our team, and I'm going to help you. I said, you're going to help me? He said, yeah. Yeah, when I was young, we played in a world championship game against the Eagles. We got beat, and it was inexcusable. I had not played my best. He said, I stood there, and I, I looked out there, and I saw that there were popcorn boxes and newspapers blowing around that field, but there was more than that on the field. There were regrets on that field. I had left regrets. Willie Davis had left regrets. And he said, you come on our practice field and leave no regrets. And you just might make our team. He said, there are two pains in life. The pain of discipline, the pain of regret. You choose. And Bill, when you don't think you can make it another day, when Nitschke's tearing your head off, and he did, and Lombardi's screaming and spitting in your face, and he did, you think you can't take it anymore. You come find me and I'll get you through it. I'll get you through it. You know what we call him? We called him Dr. Feelgood. And sure enough, Lombardi's screaming and Nitschke's beating me up. And I'd run find Willie D. And I'd say, how you feel, old man? He said, feel good, man. Feel good. You can do it. You can do it. So what did the great man do for the terrified last round draft choice? He didn't just help me play in the NFL for 10 years. He changed my life. My life was transformed. It was an unexpected, undeserved, unrewarded act of kindness. And those change people's lives every day in this world. There's a great message there, and it goes way beyond the sport of football. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it jumped off the page when I was, you know, kind of reading up on, uh, you know, reading uh, some of the things about you. Uh, obviously, it was just a profound impact and obviously a legendary player, too. It's amazing to have all that in, in one vessel. Um, amazing. So, so Lombardi leaves you unprotected and you're picked up by New Orleans in the expansion draft. But Don Shula trades for you. He's, seen, he's the coach of the Baltimore Colts at the time, and he's seen your play, and he likes you. And so he brings you on and makes you the special teams captain right out of the gate. Is that correct? Yeah, he did. And, and, and if, if I understand the story correctly, uh, in, in either your first game or your second game, early on in the season, you get called for a clip on a special teams play on a kickoff. First game. First league game. First game. And he comes on the field basically tearing you one and you get in his face, letting him know what you think about him being on the field, tearing you one. And then in film a couple days later, doesn't go so well. Yeah. John Sandusky said, Curry, is that a clip? And I said, well, might be. 
He said, well, let me make a suggestion. The next time you decide the dog cuss the head coach on national television, you make damn sure it's not a clip. You understand? <laughs> I said, oh, gee. Carolyn was flying in or I knew with our new baby girl, five weeks old, and we were looking for an apartment, and I was going to get cut after one game. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a good feeling. But you talked to the coach, and he was – Well, I went, to find, I went and found Coach Shula, and he took me in the equipment room, that little bitty thing in there in Memorial Stadium, place that I will always love, and I'll always love Don Shula for this, for this moment, because it, uh, this was – a key, one of the many keys to his greatness. There's a reason he won more games than anybody in the history of the NFL, anybody else. I said, Coach, uh, I was out of line. You, you have taught us between the white lines, we're going to be a violent, aggressive bunch, but we're not going to get penalties. And I got the penalty, but you did come across the white line. And I responded, and I'm sorry, and I was wrong, and I'll never do it again to you. And uh, you know what he said? He smiled. He said, I kind of like that. <laughs> he said, just don't clip the guy. Oh, my gosh. You think we played hard for him? Oh, man. I would have done anything for him. Um, and uh, I, I still feel that way. I, I just yeah. wish, wish he was around. I wrote him letters and, and tried to and th and thank him uh, every way I could while he was still with us. Yeah. And again, just like in Green Bay, you look around that locker room and you're just tripping over Hall of Famers. Uh, obviously, John Mackey and John Unitas and Marchetti and Lenny Moore. I mean, it's just it's just Hall of Famers everywhere. Um, I, I think I read you said something like, if, if from the perspective of the first 50 years of the NFL, you said if there's one person who you just have to look at and say, that's the NFL right there, it was John Unitas. Um, I'm curious you know, kind of give your first impressions of, of, you know, you come in, you've just played with Bart Starr. Now you're playing with John Unitas. What was that like? Utterly different personality. Almost identical results. Right. Although Bart won more championships um, in, in the final analysis. Um, first day of practice. I was so disappointed because I got to Maryland and I thought, boy, it's going to be really nice in Westminster, Maryland for training camp. Um, it, was just, it was just as hot as Georgia. It was hot as Atlanta, Georgia. It might have been worse. And we, had, we practiced at Western Maryland College, and the practice field was down in this hole. Um, oh. Plimpton wrote about it in One More July. Well, I'm, I'm walking down in this One More July setting uh, for the first day of practice, and Unitas is waddling down there those bow legs of his he's got on a rubber jacket and it's about a thousand degrees and he's he's humming a, a happy tune and so i thought well i'm gonna see if i can make friends with this guy quickly um, and i said hey old man what what are you so happy about it's 102 degrees we're getting ready to go down here and practice football he looks at me that askance he said well billy you know, you're a long time dead, son. I said, what? what? What'd you say to me? You're a long time dead. You're not going to be on this earth very long. And if you don't like where you're going to work, maybe you need to go to work somewhere else. Well, my practice habits improved drastically in an instant. Right. And that was a very different approach from Bart Starr or Willie Davis. But the message was clear. If you want to be on our team, you're going to love to practice. 
and heaven knows we did. Shoeless practices were twice as hard as Lombardi's. Wow. I mean, twice as hard. But if you made it through training camp, you knew, by golly, nobody was going to be tougher than us. Nobody. Right. And, and that's what Unitas was trying to give me that message real quick, just to see what, how I was going to respond. So what I did is I, I tried my best to impress him for the next six years. And um, we, we worked it out and um, we had our differences. And he was, again, a very different personality. But um, I love I loved being on his side. It was it was like stepping into the huddle with Mount Rushmore. <laughs> and um, obviously the team comes together in 1968 and you go to a Super Bowl. Every, every career with highs is going to have its lows. Obviously, Super Bowl three versus the Jets is, has got to stand out as one of the lows. One thing I, I read that really struck me, you were saying that Early on in the game, or maybe when the teams came out, the Jets looked wide-eyed. But with every minute or two that passed, you could see that they gained confidence that they could compete, that they could hang with you. And I, I flashed back to, I've watched, you know, 10,000 NCAA basketball games, you know, tournament games. And sure, half the time, the Kentuckys and the North Carolinas blow somebody's doors off right out of the gate. Every now and then, one of those Lehigh's or uh, Norfolk States hang around a little bit. And then hang around a little bit more. And all of a sudden, they're thinking that to themselves, we can do this. You know, why can't we compete? It's 21-20 or whatever it is. And is that kind of the impression you had with the Jets that day? Well, we kept making mistakes. And, and we right. had not done that. Listen, that team was 15-1. and one. Yep. Going into that game, we had lost one game. We lost Unitas. He didn't take a snap all year. Earl Morrill played quarterback, and he was the most valuable player in the league. Right. We lost one game, and it was to Cleveland. We had just been to Cleveland to beat them 34 to nothing in the NFL championship. Right. We were 15-1, and one, and we take the field to play against the Jets, and no, and they can't stop us. And we're just run, rip, ripping up and down the field. Tom Maddy is still the, still had, has the highest per yards, yards per carry in Super Bowl history. He averaged over 11 yards a carry that day. Oh, is that right? They wow. Know them. They yeah. couldn't stop us. We stopped ourselves over and over and over. And every time we stopped ourselves, they hit a little bit harder. They played a little bit lower and they played a little bit better. And by halftime, we had a real game because they were good. They didn't get there by accident. They sure. were very good. They were plenty good enough to beat anybody, but they didn't believe that until we gave them reason to believe. That's my opinion. I'm sure they would laugh at me. Right, right. And obviously one of the most iconic plays in that game is uh, the, the play where Earl Morrill, the, the pitch back and Earl Morrill's looking downfield and you're, you've got the perfect vantage point to see the wide open Jimmy Orr waving on the goal line. And inexplicably, the MVP of the league throws it kind of over the middle and it gets intercepted. Was the band, the Baltimore Colt band, ironically, had uh, come out of the stands and they had lined up in the back of the end zone and their blue was exactly the same color as our jerseys. And Earl couldn't find Jimmy Orr. Is he right? literally could not see him. Uh, and then he saw uh, whoever had the middle route. Somebody had somebody was supposed to split the middle, probably the tight end. And he saw him and he thought, well, that, that might work. So he tried it, but it got intercepted as well. So, yeah, that, that was a play that always worked. And it would have worked then. Um, and um, 
just a lot of things happened. Um, but they beat us. They were well prepared, and they—I mean—they—they they moved the ball. They kept the ball when we needed to get it back, and that's how they really earned the game. That, that Joe Namath's the only guy to be MVP. He happens to be a good friend of mine because we played together in the Senior Bowl. We expected to hate each other's guts, and we ended up being big buddies ever since. But um, he's the only quarterback to ever be MVP in the Super Bowl who didn't throw a pass in the fourth quarter. They just ran it down our throat, and we couldn't stop them. So they deserve to win. Right. Yeah. Heavy dose of Matt Snell, right? Matt Snell and Winston Hill, yeah. And, yeah. and Emerson Boozer is the blocker. Yep, that's right. Um, so, so disappointing loss. Don Shula, a year later, goes to Miami. Don McCafferty comes in as the coach. And under Don McCafferty, who – Speaking of lineages of coaches and players, this is a guy who played college football for Paul Brown and then is an assistant for Weeb Eubank when they're winning a title down in Baltimore in, I think, 59. He becomes the head coach. 59, yeah. Yeah. And he becomes the head coach. And um, all he does is in his first season as head coach, wins the Super Bowl with you. Uh, and then I guess ownership change, Carol Rosenblum and Bob Ursay switch teams, the Rams and the Colts, one of those kind of crazy things that just happens sometimes and the culture changes and uh, Joe Thomas comes in and next thing you know, Don McCafferty loses a few games and he's out. Right. When he lost his job, he had the best record of any head coach in the national football league. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing to think that, you know, for, for, you know, even just looking at you individually, all these incredible coaches you played for, you win a Super Bowl under Don McCafferty. Obviously, tragically, he dies shortly thereafter when he takes over yeah. the Lions. Um, but, you know, in, in, you know, you kind of look up his record and you think this is this guy was on his way to being a legend. Uh, so what they was also, his they also traded 26 of us? A team that had won the Super Bowl two years prior. Well, and, and one year prior, we, we had been one game short of the Super Bowl. Uh, the Dolphins were just starting to get really good, largely because of Shula. Uh, and they had beat us in the playoffs to keep us from going back to the uh, – we were one game short of the Super Bowl the year before, 71. And so all of that has just been brushed aside in the historical perspective. Yeah. Yeah, Don McCafferty is one of those guys who, when you're, you know, looking back at the annals of pro football and you're thinking of, you know, the various champions, this is a man who had an incredible win percentage. Only coach was only a head coach for a couple of years, has a Super Bowl championship. It's just a, a shame he passed on as as early as he did. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then as they're turning over the roster and trying to kind of remake it in their own image, which obviously, you know led to some poor records there for the next couple of years, you go to the Houston Oilers. And that was a team that was kind of struggling to get its feet under them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They had uh, brought in a, a, a new coaching staff. I'm, I think coach Peterson's first year was our year 73. I think I'm not sure about that because I only lasted four games. I, I, uh, I had a knee injury that was, um, to use the doctor's terms, catastrophic. He's, first thing the doctor said to me was, son, we're going to try to save your leg. I said, wow, thanks. I, mean, I hope we can do that. Yeah. And then he said, you'll be able to walk, but it'll be with a cane probably. Uh, 
And then he said about six months later, you might be actually able to run on this thing at some point. And then he said, I hope you can get 10 years out of it. Well, I played ironically for the Rams the next year because Carol Rosenblum had gone to the Rams and right. he was very loyal to players who had been loyal to him. Very. And he brought me out there and they needed somebody to snap for extra points. He said, I think he was just being kind, but, um, that was my last year playing. Um, but that knee transplant is still working. And that was in 1973. So Dr. Robert Fain gets a, a lot of credit. Uh, he wasn't very happy with his result immediately after, but it's done. It's been great. Pretty good. <laughs> Almost 50 years. <laughs> it works. It hurts all the time, but it works. And it was about that time um, that you were becoming heavily involved when you were with the Colts, you had obviously played with and been friends with John Mackey, who was famously the head of the players association. Yeah. And then you assumed the role once he retired. Is that correct? Well, I didn't want to, but he made me do it and I couldn't say no to him. Um, I got a phone call from him. Um, I'm pretty sure it was 1970. Uh, he was in so-called negotiations that was supposed to be held at the Westchester Country Club with the owners. And, uh, oh, my goodness, they found out they couldn't have it at the country club because we had African-Americans on our committee. Yes. So they weren't allowed to go to the Westchester Country Club. They had to go to downtown New York uh, to a hotel. So John goes in the hotel, gets in the meeting room with the owners, looks around and sees who's in the room, walks out of the room, picks up the phone and calls my house, say, Curry, get up here right now. I said, for what? He said, go, I, you, you got to come guard my backside. I want you to sit right here in this room and study who's here and tell me who I can trust. And we had that kind of relationship. And I always treasured the fact that we loved each other like that. We didn't go around saying we loved each other, but we did. And uh, the fact that he trusted me, and then he started saying, "When I when I have to, when I give this stuff up, you're going to take it over." And I said, "Oh no, I'm not." But I, I couldn't say no when it happened in '73, so I did that for um, two or three years. Right. And while nobody will ever come out and say it, you were rehabbing your way back from the knee injury. You were going back to Houston, having been involved in the negotiations and everything. You get back to Houston, and within a day or two, Sid Gilman basically releases you, right? And releases a bunch of the other players who had been involved in Washington in some of the talks with the ownership. Is that fairly That's accurate? right. And the mistake that, um, that Sid made, Sid was not a bad guy. He was just he was just a very hard-nosed old ball coach. Sure. And he didn't need uh, some labor leader hanging around. And... Um, I actually enjoyed my time with, with, with him. But um, what the mistake they made is they cut me without allowing me to practice with the team. So that allowed us to take uh, and to file a charge with the National Labor Relations Board before a National Labor Relations judge, um, an unfair labor practice, because the president of the union wasn't allowed to do his job, not even for one part of one day 
before wow. being uh, before being fired and terminated. And it took us two or three years, but we prevailed in the case. So Bum Phillips was required to call me up in 1976 and offer me my job back. Uh, and we were both laughing hard under our <laughs> up our sleeves. And by that time, I was coaching at Georgia Tech, and he said. Bill, I'm officially offering your job back at full salary. I said, Bum, how many 208-pound centers do you have on your roster? Because that's what I weighed. By this, by that time, I'd I'd lost all my weight. <laughs> so it was it was not a, it wasn't practical that that we would have won, but it was it was a good um, it was a good lesson I think for the league to see where things were headed as long as they continued to just jack us around like we were nobodies and they, they learned their lessons in spades in the eighties and nineties, as the players developed the power to strike the regular season. And that's when the players took over and uh, got free agency. And now they control 60% of the gross of a $16 billion annual business. Yeah. Yeah. The, the seeds were planted with you guys back in the seventies for sure. Well, I'd like to think we at least gave somebody the idea. Yeah. Now, when you were in Washington for some of those negotiations, that's when your first coach in the NFL, Vince Lombardi, was sadly dying at Georgetown Hospital. And you get a call from a former teammate saying, we got something to do right now. Yeah. This is a real teammate. Bob Long. He said, uh, you know, coach is in the hospital. I said, yeah, I know. Sorry. And I I had been very vocal in my disapproval of Vince Lombardi. I was wrong about most of it. Um, I was hurt. I was angry and I was stupid. Um, I was sinful. And um, I frankly didn't know much what to do about it. And uh, Bob said, well, I'll tell you what to do about it. You and I are gonna go see him tomorrow. I said, oh, no, we're not, he said. I can't use his exact words, but it was something like, look, I know where you are. I'm coming to your hotel room. If I have to drag your big, you know what, I will out to the car, but we're going, Bob's Catholic. He said, we're going to light a candle for coach and we're going to go to his room and you're going to do this whether you like it or not. And that is a teammate because he knew, he knew that that was the only right thing to do. The person I was really afraid of seeing was Marie because she had always treated Carolyn and me like her own. Right. And uh, so I step off, naturally, I step off the elevator and she's standing there talking to Sonny Jurgensen, the quarterback for the uh, Redskins, the, the Washington, no, well, the Washington football team. Yeah, correct. <laughs> um, and I, so I just cringed and she embraced me and she said, let's go see. She called him Ben. Let's go see Ben. I was shaking like a leaf. And his right arm was uh, full of IVs. So I took his left hand and I choked out something like, Coach, I said some things I shouldn't have. I didn't tell the truth. And I want to tell you I apologize. And uh, I want to tell you, too, that you've meant a lot to my life. And uh, he didn't blink. His body was emaciated, but those eyes were the same. And he squeezed my hand and looked in my eyes and said, you can mean a lot to my life if you'll pray for me. And I promised that I would. And I had to leave the room. Right. 
we get outside the room and Marie says, why'd you say all that stuff? I said, I don't, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, but we, be, we became close with her again. Uh, thank God for that. Right. But um, what had the great man done? He had forgiven me when I least deserved it. And that's what the Christian faith is all about. You forgive folks when they don't deserve it. And that's what he did. Yeah. So if we were, if we if it were my responsibility, which it is not, to judge anybody else's faith, he certainly measured up. Yeah. And it was as daunting as it was probably, it probably, well, as daunting as it was to go in there, it's probably one of those things you're eternally grateful that you did, that Bob Long grabbed you by the ear and brought you in. Eternally grateful. I thank yeah. him every time we talk. And then speaking of, you know, kind of circling back, the, the, the intensity of Ray Nitschke back in training camp when you were a rookie with Green Bay and, you know, the smashing of the face masks and, and all of that. Towards the end of his career, you've now moved on and you see him in an exhibition game, if I understand correctly, uh, maybe in Milwaukee. And you go up to him after the game. This is he's on his last legs of his career and you have a chat with him, right? Yeah, and he was in a, um, a very unusual. I, mean, I had I had uh, sh shot my mouth off about him too publicly. I had a <laughs> gift for that. Just stupid. I mean, really stupid, uh, dishonest stuff. Um, I'd give anything if I hadn't done it. But he was, um, and by this time, um, of course, I had been playing a lot for a long time. And he saw me as a peer, which was very different than it had been when I was on the team with him. And he, he began to say, I can still play. Don't you think I can still play? And I said, of course you can. Um, but for him, to, it was something sad about him feeling like he had to say something like that. And then the career ends. You famously... Uh, collaborate with George Plimpton on a book called One More July, which if anybody's out there listening to this is a wonderful book that you have to read. It's, it basically takes place over the course of a day or well, two days uh, while Bill Curry and George Plimpton drive from Louisville, Kentucky to Green Bay for one last shot at playing, uh, which in the end, and just the, the, the stories that transpire and the, the memories that, you know, come flooding out. Um, and in the end, you didn't make the team. You and Bart had a conversation. You and Coach Starr at that point had a conversation where he said, you know, let's think about doing something different. And you scouted for a year, correct? Yes, I did. Thanks to Bart. Yeah. And two things, two things strike me that are fascinating. First of all, obviously, that, that begins the coaching career. But also, you scout for a year. At one point, you go down and you're scouting at Alabama. And you have a conversation <laughs> with Bear Bryant. And Bear Bryant and your college coach, Bobby Dodd, had basically had a feud that at that point had, you know, kind of lasted over 10 years. And Bear Bryant and you basically talked and Bear Bryant said, you know, basically intimated that it's time for this feud to end. And you acted as the go-between, right? He did. Uh, he, I had played for him in an all-star game in the college, the coach's All-American game. And we had just hit it off. He was the O-line coach. Parsegian was. Eric Parsegian was the head coach, and sure. uh, right before our 
uh, this is right before the college all-star game in 1965. And coach Bryant uh, didn't have any of his Alabama guys. So he kind of took me under his wing. And, um, and here I was 10 years later, career over standing on his practice field. And this bullhorn voice from uh, his tower said, Bill, why don't you come up here where you can see something? But I knew if something was up, he didn't just, he wasn't inviting me up there because he wanted my company. He wanted to tell me something. And he hemmed and hawed for a while. And finally he said, you ever talk to Dodd? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, i tell you what you do. You go home and you call Dodd. And you tell him we're too old to be feuding. And we, I'll, you tell him I'll sponsor Georgia Tech back into the Southeastern Conference. Well, that was great news to me. So I hustled to my car, drove home, called Coach Dodd and said, told him what Bryant had said. And he said, well, we won't ever get back in the conference because too many other schools hate us. And he was right. But he said, Paul's right. He called him Paul. He said, I'll call him and we need to um, – we need to stop fussing. And they had, they had not spoken in years and years. That's a, that's a very long story. Yeah. Uh, so they, not only did they uh, reignite their friendship, they resumed the series between Georgia Tech and Alabama. So five years later, I had become head coach of my alma mater, Georgia Tech. And I'll let you guess who my first game was against and where we played. We had to go to Legion Field and play against Bear Bryant in the oh very first game I ever coached. Can oh you imagine? Wow. That's amazing. Well, I was just afraid I was going to pass out before the game. That, that's what I was worried about. How did the game go? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was Bear Bryant. <laughs> they were nice to us. It was 26 to 3, but it could have been 100. And he was just, he was nice to us. That's all I can say. And then in a life that seems to have a lot of symmetry, you know, you're, you're in Green Bay at the beginning of your career. You end up in training camp with Green Bay at the end of your career. You coach under Bart Starr. You had gone to college at Georgia Tech. Now you're the head coach at Georgia Tech. Uh, then you end up the coach at Alabama. You've got this relationship that you've, you know, kind of sparked with Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant passes away. There's a couple of coaches that come in. And then you become the coach at Alabama. That's no easy job to step into. You were there for three years, correct? Yeah, three years. And it was very controversial. Um, Ray Perkins had been the coach. And he had been my teammate for six years with Baltimore Colts. Sure. And was a great friend. And he called me and said, I want you to take this job. I thought he was, I thought he was messing with me. I really thought he was uh, drunk. It was a New Year's Eve. I said, go have another drink, Perk. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Uh, I'd never seen him drunk. but uh, right. He said, well, you may think I'm drinking, but uh, the president, Dr. Uh, um, oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm losing the name of our president, who is one of the most important people in all this story. Oh, Dr. Thomas um, is going to call you in five minutes. And this is New Year's Eve. So I said, sure, Perk, have a nice evening. Uh, we hung up. Dr. Thomas called in five minutes. And it was serious. And they had a diverse committee. And I thought if that committee okayed a certain candidate, it would probably be just fine with 
all the Alabama people. Well, the, the committee okayed me, but uh, it was certainly not okay with most of the people. So it was a, it was a tough time and I don't blame anybody. Uh, and we moved on after three years. But it was a great privilege to walk that sideline and to coach those young men. Uh, they will they play their heart out because that's the tradition. That's the expectation when they show up. You don't have to motivate anybody. And sure. You get a guy like Saban uh, at a place like that, and you see what happens. I, I still remember that. I think it was your '89 team. Correct me if I'm wrong. That went to the Sugar Bowl against. Miami of Florida and Miami yeah. won it and won the national title, but it was like a one touchdown game. I mean, you had it yeah. right there. Yeah. We, we should have, the two games we lost that year were my fault and um, we should have won them all. Uh, but you can, it's easy to say that the other teams should have won. The teams that won also should have won. So, and they did and we didn't. It's kind of like the jet thing. Right. Uh, right. You, you can't, shoot your mouth off and say, we could have, should have, would have, you better, you have to do it when you're there. Right. Right. And then, uh, and then you go to Kentucky and then in the kind of the final piece of symmetry with regard to the football career, you mentioned at the very beginning, Carolyn's pursuit of education in different degrees. And I think I remember seeing that she graduated from Georgia state. That's your right. final head coaching job was starting up the program at Georgia state. Which yeah, given I, all I need I need to tell you one story about Kentucky, and that is on the day that I was um, released, um, I, I wanted to spend a couple of hours in my office and just get my head on straight because we had four more games. We had a great bunch of kids. This was not their fault. This was all this was strictly on me. And I wanted to finish the season well, which we did. Um, I didn't want anybody in that office with me. I'd already gotten the staff all squared away with their duties to get ready for the next game. So I told my assistant, don't let anybody in here. And about an hour later, she says, somebody's here to see you. I said, no, you didn't hear what I said. I don't care who it is. You're not letting it. She said, well, I, I think I am going to let him in. Bart walked in. Wow. I said, what are you doing? He said, I came to see you. I said, do you have business here? No. You passing through town? No. I came to spend the day with you. He sat down on the sofa and wouldn't leave. That is a teammate. That yeah. is a, so you, but you had another question. I just thought I would tell that story. If you were to try to match Bart Starr for being a great friend, you wouldn't have a chance. None of us would. None of right. us would have a chance. Yeah, and if and for again for uh, for the listener out there, uh, if you want a powerful fifteen minute YouTube clip, watch Bill Curry's eulogy for Bart Starr at his funeral. Uh, pretty powerful. Um, pretty powerful. I'll just let it sit there. Uh, yeah, what I was going to say was. Um, you had spoken about, you know, we talked about the importance of education and, you know, your wife, you were, you know, she was going to take a job while you tried, you know, to play pro oh, football. Yeah. And then she was going to come back and ultimately finishes up her degree or degrees, uh, at least one of them at Georgia state. And then the next thing, you know, you're the head football coach at Georgia state as, you know, kind of your last stop. Well, after Kentucky, I promised her I would never be in charge of a hundred teenage males ever again. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> 
And she said, I am so happy to hear that. We had uh, sat down with a, a calculator and we figured out that she was the captain of the cheerleaders when we were in high school, when I played at College Park. We had done over 700 football games together. Wow. All the way through college, all the way through 10 years of the NFL, 27 years of coaching, and then ESPN for 11 years. And she watched some of those games, not all. <laughs> she never quite got around to telling me. Um, but um, I promised her I wouldn't do this again. And here comes Georgia State. And they didn't just say, let's start a football program. They said, we want you to do it. So I sat her down and said, honey, uh, you're sitting down. So I'm going to run this by you. Just don't, just promise me you won't strike me when I finish telling you. <laughs> and, uh, but I said, Georgia State wants to start a football team and they want us to do it. Because it really was a, it, with her, she was, she was the outstanding student in their history graduate program. She was, she was a, a very big entity down there anyhow before sure. all of this. And she considered it. I mean, really, she thought about it for 30 seconds. She, she said, it's my school. We don't have to move. Let's do it. That's how long it took. It's amazing. Um, as we, as we, as we wrap up, I wanted to do, I wanted to do two things. Um, I wanted to just throw a couple of names of players out there, uh, you know, players you played with or, or coached. Um, just, just to get your kind of impression, maybe a, a funny story if one pops into mind. Um, and then also, years ago, I saw a clip. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was on ESPN. I think you were, you know, kind of calling in to a, a show, and you talked about uh, football after 9/11, um, and you talked about how um, I forget the exact way you put it, but you said something like, um, "It's." Uh, the community comes together and huddles on a Friday night and all differences fall away. And I'd, I'd love for you to, you know, kind of comment on that if, if you have a second, because I happen to live here and I happen to be downtown that day on nine 11 and wow. as horrific as that day was, and it was obviously horrific for you know the, the nation and certainly people who were directly impacted. Um, but you really spoke to something there, you know, kind of the importance of like community and what, you know, community means to us and what sports means to us. So I'd love, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Before I do that, I'm just going to throw out one or two names and just see what you, John Matuzak, what was, what was he like in that Houston locker room? John was um, a beautiful child, um, six foot eight, weighed about a thousand pounds with 2% body fat. And um, I just loved him. He was, he was a Wisconsin kid and I had kind of uh, gotten to know Wisconsin kids living there. Um, and I, I wanted so much for him to make it and to get his life together. And he was getting into some things that he shouldn't have I didn't know that at the time, and I've always regretted that I didn't detect it and that I didn't spend more time. I, I, I don't have the illusion that I could have kept him from um, running afoul of the stuff that he got into, but um, he, was a, he was a very good person, and um, I'm, I'm really sorry that he didn't have a, a longer, a more enjoyable life. Yeah. Yeah. Um... 
from your Green Bay days, Paul Hornick. <laughs> the golden boy. Yeah. We were um, together on the practice field one day before practice, and I was moaning and groaning. It's uh, typical Bill Curry. Oh, I don't have much natural ability. He said, I have great natural ability. <laughs> he said, Billy, I've, I've watched you and you got more than you think you do. So stop knocking yourself and, um, and I'm going to help you. All those guys were so helpful. Um, and even Nitschke, and, and, I mean, Nitschke was helping me the best way he could by being a, a great middle linebacker. How else would I have learned to block against a great middle linebacker if he hadn't have played so hard and so well against me? But Paul, um, probably the best example of Paul, he and Horning, he and um, McGee hung out together, Max McGee. Sure. They were constantly um, breaking training, and Lombardi kind of enjoyed it, believe it or not, because yeah. they could come out on Sunday afternoon and produce, both of them. Uh, Max, not very much by the time I got there, but when we did need him, and heaven knows we needed him in Super Bowl One, Bart said he's the most valuable player. And Bart said that Bart didn't deserve the, the Corvette in Super Bowl One that Max did, uh, and, he, and he's probably right. But um, one day, Horning and Max are having an argument, and um, Horning is lecturing Max. Look, you drink, you swear, you uh, chase women. You never go to mass. You never go to confession. You're going to go to hell. And Max is saying, that's just great. That's, that's what I need is a sermon from a hypocrite because you do the same stuff I do. And then you go to mass and go to confession. The church is going to fall down the next time you walk in and they're going <laughs> back and forth. And I, I was the only other person in the locker room. And so I'm a rookie standing over there trying to act like I'm not eavesdropping. And Horning spotted me. And he says, uh, he started calling me Elmer Gantry. I hated that. Uh, hey, Elmer, guys, don't call me Elmer Gantry. Hey, Elmer, come over here and settle this for us. Now, isn't this the way God works? I love to sin. He loves to forgive sin. Uh, it's rather admirably arranged, don't you think? And I mean, don't you think Max is in trouble because he doesn't go to confession and he doesn't go to mass? And here, I was a theology student and Max had, I mean, uh, Paul had figured it out. I was, a, I was in theology school at the time. So that qualified me in my own mind to um, pull up to my full ecclesiastical height. And I said, well, Paul, this is not between you and me. And this is not between Max and me. You know who to go to with a question like this. And without batting an eye, McGee said, oh, you're going to bring Vince into this thing too. <laughs> 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 I swear that happened just like that. <laughs> That's great. That's funny. Uh, well, yeah. Well, if if we could wrap up with with you talking about the you know your the yeah you know kind of your notion on community huddles because I thought that that was really powerful when I heard it you know years ago. Well, thank you. Um, we all remember where we were for nine one one. Those of us that are of age. Most of us don't know where we were for 913, which was that Thursday afternoon. 
I know exactly where I was because ESPN, I, at the time I was an ESPN analyst and um, ESPN had wisely changed our assignment so that none of us were going to get on an airplane that weekend. If indeed the NCAA decided to play the games, the NCAA was holding meetings to determine whether or not to play the college football games. So We'd all taken our assignments, gotten in our automobiles and started driving. And I was driving from our home. We lived in North Carolina at the time. And I was driving to Birmingham where Alabama was to play Southern Mississippi. Okay. On that Saturday. And I was told to take my, to bring my cell phone and um, that, that I would be called during that drive. And I would be told whether or not we were going to do the games. So I stopped in Atala, Alabama to get gas. And the uh, nice filling station attendant said, hey, coach, we're going to play these games this weekend because there was so much publicity about them. I said, well, I don't know, but you may be the first fan in America to find out if my phone rings while I'm in your station. Right. So uh, sure enough, two or three minutes later, my phone rang and I was told, go home. We're not playing. Okay. So I walked back up to the counter and I said, uh, say, buddy, uh, and he walked over and I said, uh, we're not playing. So um, I'm heading home. And his response was life changing for me because he leaned forward, his eyes bulged, his jugular stood out. He looked me right in the eye and he said, well, let me tell you something, coach. In Atala, Alabama, come Friday night, we're going to play football because it means a lot to us. I felt like I'd been slapped in the mouth. Wow. I went and got in my car, and I was so shaken, just like all of us were. Maybe not as much as you, because you were physically there, too. We were still terribly adrift. And I started praying, and I said, God, show me, what is this... Who cares if there's a football game in Atala, Alabama, Friday night? Have we completely lost our mind? Who cares in College Park, Georgia, on Friday night if we play a football? Who cares in Pueblo, Colorado, or Los Angeles, California, or uh, Oak Creek, Texas? Why does it matter? And it began to come to me almost as if, I were being given a, a special vision somehow because Friday night is when America huddles. We sit with people we don't sit with any other time of the week. We sit with people that don't look like us, that don't go to the same church, yeah. that don't work at the same places, that don't travel in the same circles. And then when our kids cause a touchdown, what do we do? We hug each other. Yep. Friday night is when America huddles. Yep. We get together. I looked it up in the uh, American high school coaches, in the American high school athletic records. And at that time, there it may be less now because football is losing numbers, but over a million children played football every Friday night. Whether that's good or bad, we could argue about the rules and the head trauma and all that, but that's what happens. And the yeah. people in the stands... You don't stop to say, oh, I can't hug you. You're, you're the wrong pigmentation. Or you right. go to the wrong church. I don't like your grandmother. 
No, we just hug. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what America's supposed to be. And yeah. You can't step in the huddle in our sport and be a racist anymore. You can't step in there and say, I'm not playing with that guy. He's Jewish or he's Muslim. No, you step in the huddle and you play with whoever's there. Yep. That's what has made America great. We have totally forgotten that. That's what we could be and might be in our best dreams. If yeah. we just would, if we just would. I just want to say thank you very much to, to Bill Curry, to coach Bill Curry. What a, what a great uh, hour we've just had walking through, uh, you know, basically the arc of his career, the players, the coaches, the experiences, and then a powerful message there at the end. I'm going to hit end. Thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I'm Rich Lamello. Take care. Once again, I'd like to thank the Michael Stanley Band for taking us in and the suburbs with Life is Like for taking us out. Speak to you next time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.